This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry offers the best media hosting, accurate listening stats, their all-new PowerPress Deluxe sites, a no-setup WordPress website for your podcast, and it comes with all of the necessary links to share your show with the world built right in. Head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up for media hosting, a PowerPress Deluxe site, get that podcast you've been dreaming about started, and get your first month for free. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream. And now, on to the show. Warning, this episode involves content and a discussion involving suicide and related themes. Some of the material is graphic in nature and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised, particularly if suicide and methods of suicide are sensitive topics. Last week, when we talked about the untimely death of Lana Clarkson, much was made about whether her death was by the hand of Phil Spector or, as he claimed, by her own hand. Just to be clear, I never believed for a second that Lana killed herself. I don't think I outright said that in the last episode, but I don't think I made any secret of the fact that I did not believe Spectre's versions of events that morning he shot Lana. There may have been a time when it may have been easier to stage a homicide to appear to be a suicide, but today... It seems as though it would be nearly impossible to do that, to actually kill someone and somehow fool investigators into thinking that the victim had taken their own life. Spectre didn't really come that close to fooling the jurors into thinking that Lana shot herself in the mouth, but he did cast enough doubt to cause a mistrial for himself the first time around. And I understand that. That's the way the justice system works, right? Reasonable doubt. Of course, nobody wants to convict someone of a crime if they aren't reasonably sure that they did it, and Spectre admittedly had some valid points. His fingerprints and DNA weren't on the weapon. Investigators mishandled some of the evidence, namely the missing tooth and the missing fingernail. There was no DNA of his found under her fingernails, but still, if you really step back and look at the situation, The circumstances surrounding Lana's death? I mean, does anyone really think she went over to Spectre's house and decided all of a sudden that she didn't want to live anymore? Really? Who would do that? Just kill herself in a stranger's home? I don't think so. But sometimes, some deaths are truly confounding. Like the bonus episode I had earlier in the week. The death of Kendrick Johnson. And by the way, I want to thank... Justin again for his help on that case and thank all of you guys listening for being so gracious and kind with all of your feedback about that episode. But anyway, Kendrick Johnson, there's one that I am really not sure what the heck happened. You would think that in this day and age with all of the advances in science that a death like that would have some more definitive answers. I don't know what happened to Kendrick. And everyone has their opinions. But I don't think this case should be that puzzling. Yet here we are, several years after the fact, still scratching our heads as to what the heck happened to the guy, right? Sadly, I think the chance to fully understand Kendrick's death is gone forever. I don't think, unless somebody comes up with a confession, that we are ever going to know the truth. Was it an accident? 
or was it a murder? I still go back and forth. So that leaves us with some questions. What do we look for when we decide if we're looking at a homicide or a suicide? Or maybe even in the cases of Kendrick and Lana, an accident perhaps? One way to tell is where the injuries are on the body. If someone is going to use a gun to commit suicide, a person usually shoots himself or herself in the side of the head, in the mouth, or somewhere towards the front of the body like in the chest. The fact that Lana was shot through the mouth somewhat bolstered the theory that she had committed suicide. Wounds anywhere else than in those areas are probably going to be a result of a homicide. Also, one must take into consideration which side of the body the weapon was fired from and whether the person is left-handed or right-handed. In Lana's case, the gun was found next to her left leg, but she was right-handed. It was most likely if she were to have shot herself in the mouth that she would have done it with her right hand, and the gun would have likely fallen to the right side of her, not the left. Also, when considering whether or not the shooting death of a person is a suicide or not, is the distance the gun is from the body when it was fired. Almost all suicides are either contact wounds or very close to contact range, and this will leave a burn around the wound and gunpowder residue as well. Anything further away from the skin is likely to be considered a homicide. You also look to see if there's any sign of a struggle. Does the deceased have any kind of defensive wounds or scratches or bruises or marks that indicate there may have been a fight prior to their death? If so, then homicide is likely. Investigators also consider the angle of the shot fired, as almost all suicides are slightly angled in an upward direction. And of course, if there is more than one shot fired, then you're likely looking at a homicide. Also, something interesting that I did not know, suicide victims rarely shoot through clothing for some reason. And of course, investigators always look for notes or a history of suicidal thoughts, depression, personal problems, things like that. Those are indicators that the person might have been prone to take their own life. So, when you put all of these things together, it's clear to me that Lana's death was not of her own hand. But of that, I did not need any convincing. Today, I'm going to talk to you about a different kind of death. A death that was caused by stabbing. And it's a death that could possibly challenge what you think you know as it is a story that is filled with contradictions and paradoxes. When you think you are certain of one thing, but then something else arises that brings about all sorts of doubt and confusion. Things don't add up. They won't add up. Everything is the way it is for a reason. But none of it makes any kind of sense when you try to put all the pieces together and figure out what it all means. I don't know where this story will take me, and I don't know where it will take you. And maybe in the end, we can put our heads together to try and find the story that makes the most and best sense. In today's episode of California Dreaming, the tale of Ugh de la Plaza. I mentioned that today's story involves the death by stabbing. I can't imagine what those moments feel like when a knife is being plunged into your body. It's a personal type of killing. We've all heard that, right? When somebody stabs somebody else, it's a weapon that involves being in close proximity to the person being stabbed. In contrast to using a gun that enables a person to kill somebody from a distance, knives require very close, very direct contact between the victim and the killer. But what about what we talked about earlier, a little while ago? 
What if we are trying to determine whether or not a stabbing is a homicide or a suicide? Well, before we delve into this, I think it's worth mentioning that suicide by stabbing is extremely rare. I can't emphasize this enough. Of all the people that make the decision to take their own lives, only a small fraction of those use an instrument to do so by cutting or piercing. And what's more, most of those involve mainly cutting of the wrists, but also on the rarest of occasions, the cutting of the throat. So with that being said, a stabbing anywhere else on the body, like in the torso or through the heart or something like that is so, so rare. But as we contemplate this, we must remember that although rare, it is possible to do. And because it's so rare, if investigators were to come upon a death scene where a person has been stabbed to death, one would think they'd surmise the death is a homicide, right? I mean, who stabs themselves to death? It's probably happened somewhere in the world. But of all the cases we've seen covered over the years on some of our favorite shows, I don't think I can recall a stabbing suicide. And I don't think I've seen a case where a person was stabbed and the killer tried to stage the scene to make it look as though it were a suicide either. It's just that unusual. And investigators look for the telltale signs of a murder when analyzing a stabbing death, right? Certain aspects of the scene tell the story. For example, does a stabbing victim have defensive wounds or cuts on their hands or on their wrists or arms that indicate that he or she attempted to fend off an attacker wielding a knife? It would be a knee-jerk reaction to defend yourself, raise your arms, even attempt to grab at the blade, often causing deep lacerations on the palms of the hands. Defensive wounds are a clear indicator of homicide. Investigators also look at the location of the stab wound, or wounds as it would be, as well as the number of wounds. Homicide by stabbing almost always involves multiple stab wounds. I assume that the reason for this is because, and I don't know this for a fact, but I don't think it's that easy to actually kill somebody by stabbing. Obviously, I don't know this firsthand, but I kind of think people think it's an easy way of killing someone. Just stab, 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 dead. Not so fast. I don't think it's that easy to plunge a knife into a person. I think the person doing the stabbing often underestimates the amount of force and energy it takes to actually stab someone. I also think they underestimate the instinct of the victim to fight for survival. I also think that the person doing the stabbing doesn't really realize how easy it is to injure themselves when you begin to get blood on your hands and how slippery that blood can be and how after a few knife plunges, your hand slips down the handle and across the blade, making your ability to continue the assault much less effective. So what ends up happening is a somewhat frenzied attack with a bunch of stab wounds that end up entering the victim's body on their side or on their back as they attempt to flee from the assault. Whereas in the rare case of a suicide by stabbing, there might be multiple cuts like hesitation wounds where the person who self-inflicted the injuries is tentative, making some test cuts on their skin to see how much it actually hurts, or working on building up the nerve to actually do this to themselves. And if he or she ends up following through, there is usually one stab wound, and it's likely to be into the chest. It's also been found that if someone chooses the rare method of stabbing to take their own life, that they will very rarely stab through their own clothing. The victim will tend to expose their bare skin before administering the stab wound. If the stabbing occurs through clothing, it's more likely to be a homicide. Also, 
most, but not all, suicide victims leave a note. And lastly, at the scene of a stabbing, the location of the weapon is imperative. In the case of a suicide, the weapon will always be present at the scene with the victim, and it almost always has the victim's fingerprints on it. In the case of a homicide, the weapon is almost always disposed of by the killer in order to rid the scene of evidence. All of these things we need to keep in mind as I take you through today's story. Hugues de la Plaza came to the United States in 1998 from France to pursue a career as a sound engineer. He ended up in San Francisco where the opportunities for that line of work were plentiful. He ended up landing a job with LeapFrog, and for any of you out there with children are probably familiar with the company. They design and develop technology-based educational electronic learning products for children for infants up until around grade school. I didn't really purchase LeapFrog products for my daughter. I found them to be kind of expensive. She had access to them at her preschool, and she got bored with them pretty quickly. But anyway, I digress. So on the evening of June 1st, 2007, Uge had gone to a bar with some friends from work. He was celebrating a recent promotion at LeapFrog. Remember, Uge is in a good place right now in life. He was described as having a really fun time that night. He was happy and smiling, cheerful, social, and in a very celebratory mood. He had had a few whiskeys that night, and he was a little bit inebriated, but by all accounts, he was in good spirits. Ug wasn't in a relationship. He was single, and there is some talk of his love life when looking at the things that were going on around him at this point for him personally. He had been involved in a somewhat long-term relationship with a woman named Melissa Nix. Despite having been broken up, they seemed to have been able to maintain a close friendship. She would describe Oog as the love of her life. But on this evening, Oog was not seriously tied down to anyone. He had been described as quite the ladies' man. He enjoyed being a Frenchman in the United States. American women loved his accent and he used his Frenchness to his advantage when flirting with the ladies. Oog liked to meet women online, and from the articles I've read about him, I get the feeling he didn't use a great deal of discretion when it came to whom he would go out with. I don't know what all of that really means, or if it's just a bunch of rumors, but I could see that he had a very active dating and social life. And when it came to work, the fact that he was living and working in the tech industry in San Francisco we could surmise that he was doing quite well for himself, making a good living with a job, by all accounts, he loved doing. And he had just gotten a promotion. Anyone who had anything to say about him would agree, for Oog, life was good. So what would end up happening to Oog later that night of June 1st into the early morning hours of June 2nd, 2007, is completely confounding. After that evening at the bar with his friends, he left a little bit before closing time. He had made plans with one of them before he left that they would get together the next day to go motorcycle riding. Another friend had reported that Oog indicated that he was going to try to have a rendezvous with a woman that same night. He lived very close by in an apartment in this neighborhood called Hayes Valley. I'm not sure what the neighborhood was like at this time of night, but from some reports I've read, the neighborhood he'd have to walk through might be a little dangerous at that hour. 
I don't know if he ever felt any concerns or if he had a false sense of security. If it were me, I'd probably not feel comfortable walking home through any neighborhood at two in the morning, but maybe it just wasn't a concern to him. There is even an image of a man walking by near his apartment caught on a dark, grainy surveillance camera footage that friends of Ugg are certain is him. It's impossible to know for sure if it's him or not, but because of the timing and because of the proximity to his apartment, the assumption has been made that it is him. And his ex-girlfriend Melissa is pretty sure she recognized the silhouette of Ugg in the video. Nowhere else on this video footage is anyone else seen near Ugg or passing through the frame of the video. Something happened to Ugg sometime after he went into his apartment. He made it home. His keys and wallet were all inside. He seemed to have prepared something to eat. And he did get on the computer and look at some online dating websites. But after that, what happened to Oog is completely shrouded in mystery. The next morning, Oog failed to keep his plans with his friend to go on that motorcycle ride. His friend tried to call him, but was only able to reach his voicemail. But there wasn't any immediate concern. There just wasn't any urgency. Saturday passed, and Sunday passed. It wasn't until it was back to the Monday grind that his co-workers became alarmed when Oog failed to show up for work. They were not able to get a hold of him, so one of them decided to go over to his apartment and check up on him to see what was going on. It was unusual for him to not show up for work and to be out of touch like he had been. And when that friend arrived at his apartment, it was immediately apparent that something was terribly wrong. Oog's apartment was cordoned off with yellow crime scene tape, and investigators were working in and around his apartment. From his vantage point, from behind the crime tape, Oog's friend could see that blood was on the pavement on the landing outside of Oog's front door. This was Monday, and Oog's friends and co-workers are now just coming to the realization that something terrible has happened to Oog. But let's back up to those early morning hours of Saturday. That evening, Oog walked home after the night of drinking at the bar up the street. I told you he made it home. I told you he got online and had a small bite to eat. However, Oog did not ever live to see the sunrise again. A neighbor who got up in the morning went outside to get his paper when he noticed the blood that was spilled outside of Oog's apartment and there was a lot of it. That neighbor immediately called 911 to report the gruesome find. Police arrived at the apartment at approximately 8.20 a.m. that Saturday morning. They found that the door had been deadbolted shut, so they had to break it down, and that's when they discovered that Oog was inside, dead. And the entire apartment was covered in blood. First responders on the scene said literally everything had blood on it. Oog's own bloody footprints could be seen throughout the apartment as he walked around bleeding and stepping on the blood, leaving a path as to where he had traveled through the apartment as he bled. His would be the only bloody footprints found inside the apartment. Bloody hand smears were also found along the walls, an indication that Oog was attempting to grasp at something, anything, to try and help himself up. 
but he slid downwards to the floor, leaving those smears behind. He was found on the ground next to those smeared handprints, his arms still raised up in a reaching kind of way. When the assistant medical examiner arrived at the scene about an hour after the police had found him, it was her first inclination that this was indeed the scene of a homicide. She found him lying face up on the ground in the spot where he died. She could see that he had suffered stab wounds, and these stab wounds, three in total, were ones that penetrated his clothing. And remember when I spoke earlier about homicide by stabbing, how those types of wounds are usually made through clothing, whereas any type of self-inflicted wounds, whether it's a gunshot or a stabbing or cutting, is usually done against bare skin? These stabs were through Oog's clothes. But as the assistant medical examiner began looking closely at the scene, there were certain aspects as to the way things were found that she thought were very, very unusual based on her previous experiences at other crime scenes. Firstly, the doors were all deadbolted, locked from the inside. So Oog was locked inside the apartment. Let's talk about the front door because this is where the trail of blood seemed to commence. I told you there was blood on the front landing of the apartment. There's a short staircase that leads from the sidewalk in front of Oog's door, and this staircase has a railing and a small stoop, and the door to enter into his apartment is right there, facing the sidewalk and the street he resides on, slightly above sidewalk level, elevated by that short stairway leading up to the landing. Oog's blood is on that landing. I believe his blood can be found as far away from the front door as the sidewalk, and Oog's co-worker said that he'd come over that Monday morning when Oog failed to show up for work and found his home surrounded in yellow crime scene tape, and he could see that blood was as far away as the street. I don't know the accuracy of that statement. I was not able to see crime scene photos of any blood in the actual street. I did see photos of blood on the sidewalk and on the stoop, and that appears to be the blood that bled out of Oog's body as he became injured. Now I say that because blood experts have determined that this was not blood that came from someone who began bleeding inside the apartment, walked outside, and then walked back inside, locking the door behind him. I do believe, based on the photographs and the reports of the expert, that this blood began coming from Oog as he stood somewhere near that staircase outside his apartment. I wish I knew if there was blood on the street or any further distance away from the front door, but I can't confirm that investigators found anything of the sort. Oog's co-worker and friend did say he saw blood on the street, but he isn't an expert. I'm sure in the moment, this man was in a great deal of shock and was likely in a traumatic state of mind when he came to this place to find Oog's apartment was an apparent crime scene. Did he see blood on the street? Or was that a flippant over-exaggeration in a very emotional moment? I don't know but I can't find any description or talk of blood on the street. I do not believe the medical examiner or law enforcement saw a trail of blood leading away from the apartment. The bleeding is on the stoop, and then the trail of blood goes into the apartment. In the crime scene photos, there is blood on the outside of the front door. You can clearly see blood dripping down the door, 
long drips of blood where the person who is bleeding is standing at the door dripping blood directly onto it and the blood ran down. There are blood drips on the transition strips between the stoop and the entrance of the apartment. And much is going to be made of these blood drops here at the front door and all around the apartment. The reason is because of all the bleeding that occurred inside Oog's apartment. All of it came from him as he was moving about his home very slowly in a way that doesn't suggest any type of panic, fear, or effort to fight or flee or run from anything or anyone. And this fact has been inferred because all of the shape of the blood drops that landed on the floor inside, all of the blood that fell from him in a way that suggested Oog was moving very slowly or even standing still as most of it, if not all of the blood, landed in drops that fell straight down from him and splattered in a circular shape. If the blood had any type of elliptical shape, this would have been an indication that he'd been moving fast, running, or perhaps fighting, casting off blood that would have resulted in a more elongated shape as it were to hit the floor. Okay, so that, based on this blood evidence, told investigators, whatever Oog was doing as he was bleeding inside his home, he was not in a panic or in a fight, and that cannot be disputed. But once I describe the nature of his actual stab wounds, you might be very quickly to come to the conclusion that it simply wasn't physiologically possible for Oog to move quickly as he was in the process of bleeding to death. How fast is one able to move when having suffered the kinds of injuries he'd suffered? And I'll get to his injuries in just a little bit. Despite the blood evidence showing a slow-moving yet dying Oog, the scene has some signs that, upon first glance, appear that some kind of struggle ensued inside the apartment. His television was knocked over, kind of landed on its side from where it had been sitting atop a small entertainment center. There was broken glass in the living room area, but I could not find where this broken glass came from. The reports didn't say that it was a broken window, but it was on the ground and in the living room. It could have been from a picture frame or a drinking glass, something that got knocked over onto the ground and broken. Also, when Oog's body was finally moved from the spot where he came to rest and died, investigators found his watch underneath him. His watch was broken, as though it had been torn from his wrist and landed underneath him. This caused the assistant medical examiner at the scene to think that the watch was torn from his wrist and that this was something that occurred as a result of a struggle or a fight with an assailant. But this is a complete contradiction of what the blood evidence indicates. No signs of any struggle at all. But it was there, a watch, and it was torn off. You can see it clearly in crime scene photos that the band is still buckled together, but it had been forcibly separated where it connects to the actual face of the watch. So, definitely broken, definitely forcibly removed from his wrist. And not only that, his watch did in fact contain traces of unknown DNA, but that evidence would not be found by the San Francisco investigators. And I will talk more about that a little bit later. Now, if you were to look at the crime scene photos, you will find that the place is literally covered in blood. I mean, Oog moved around the apartment bleeding over everything, 
and all of it is that slow velocity blood dripping. There is one photo of the coffee table, at least that's what the medical examiner described it as, a coffee table. But based on the photograph itself, I can't tell where in the apartment the table is. I can't see its proximity to the sofa. However, it does look like a table that's only no more than a couple of feet in height. On it, you can see Oog's laptop, and it is covered in blood, with blood drops and blood smears. What is strange is that there does not appear to be any blood on the table that the laptop is sitting on. What this particular photo seems to indicate to me is that at some point, Oog was handling his laptop while he was bleeding. That's what he was doing when he arrived home from the bar that evening. And I will talk about the timing of events of that night in a little bit as well. He had been on his computer perusing some dating websites. He had taken his computer from where it normally sits at a desk and seemed to have brought it over where it was found on that coffee table. Then Oog at some point somehow became stabbed, mortally wounded, and blood ended up smeared and dropped on his computer. It was sitting on the coffee table with seemingly no other blood around it. And next to his computer, also sitting on this coffee table, is Oog's cell phone, completely untouched. No blood around it, no blood on it. No attempts to reach for it. It is exactly where Oog left it the last time he handled it. And the last time he handled his cell phone, he was not bleeding. So what does this mean? It is such an eerie photo to look at. I've watched news stories where victims have reached for their phone, and I'm sure you have as well. We've found victims near their phones in their final attempts to call for help. We've seen phones in their hands or near their bodies, off their hooks if they've been landlines, even with blood found on the 9 and on the 1 buttons as an attempt to call emergency services had been made. But not Oog's phone. Not one speck of blood on his cell phone. But there's blood all over that computer next to it. It's strange, right? Investigators found it to be strange, too. And what this said to them was Oog did not try to call for help. He was dying. He was slowly traversing the apartment, bleeding to death seemingly reaching for things to grasp onto and doing so, but he never attempted to reach for his cell phone to call 911. But for me, I don't quite see it that way. Yes, as I've said, we know victims try to reach for their phones, but we can't possibly know how or what Oog was thinking or feeling as he struggled for life in his last moments in that apartment. He was moving slowly, he got blood on things, even his laptop. He bled in the kitchen too, over the sink, near the food that he had just been eating before he was injured. Maybe Oog, in the state that he was in, bleeding out and dying, was reverting back in his mind to the last things that he was doing. That's kind of what I think. His thinking was back to what he had been doing. We can't possibly know what was going on in the minds of every victim when they become mortally wounded. We think that they'd make the attempt to reach for our phones, right? Well, maybe not always. And I have a really good example. Do you guys remember the case of the murder of Peter Porco and the attempted murder of his wife, Joan Porco? They had been attacked with an axe in their home, and their son, Christopher Porco, was eventually convicted of committing the crime. 
Well, if you aren't familiar with the case, there is a Forensic Files episode out there. That should be on Netflix. And the True Crime All the Time podcast also did an episode on the story, too. So Peter and Joan had been attacked with an axe while they were sleeping in their bed. Peter had been struck no less than 16 times, including blows that penetrated his skull and removed a portion of his jaw. Joan had been struck about the head and face with the axe as well, but neither of them died immediately. Peter Porco actually got up from bed and began his day as he typically did. Based on the evidence and the blood trails in his home, investigators were able to see that Peter got up and went to the bathroom. There were blood smears on the toilet and the flushing handle. He stood over the sink and seemingly shaved or attempted to shave. There was blood drops in the sink. He then made his way downstairs and loaded the dishwasher with the dishes that had been in the sink from the night before. There were blood drops all around and in the dishwasher. Then there was blood leading to the front door and outside where Peter had gone out to get his morning paper. And when he did that, he actually accidentally allowed the front door to close behind him, locking himself out of his home. But he still had enough higher brain function going on to remember where he kept his spare key hidden on the porch, allowing him to unlock the door and let himself back in. Peter Porco did eventually pass away in the foyer of his home near the entrance, after he'd let himself back in from getting his morning paper. So my point is that this is an example of someone who'd been mortally wounded, who continued to go on about their day as if they seemingly didn't realize how damaged their body actually was. Peter Porco's injuries were obviously different, as he did not die quite as quickly as Oog did, and Oog had a massive injury to a vital artery, and I will get to those details. Peter had axe wounds to the head, which didn't cause him to bleed to death quickly, but caused him to die slowly, with still some obvious brain function working somewhat normally. And this is what I kind of think was going on in Oog's mind. I think it's possible that some part of his brain was still going back to the activities he had been involved in prior to being injured, but at the same time, or in very short succession, began to slowly struggle with surviving the wounds he had suffered. I don't think he lived nearly as long as Peter Porco did. I think it all happened very fast, and death came to Oog very, very quickly. And this is where the thinking and the theories as to what happened to Oog de la Plaza begin to shift for some involved in the investigation into his death. What did these aspects of the scene mean to them? What did it mean that Oog wasn't in a life-or-death struggle about the apartment? What did it mean that he moved slowly, bleeding out as he did, with no apparent sense of urgency or panic in the moment? And what did it mean that he passed his phone, who knows how many times, but made no attempts to reach for it or dial from it. That perhaps death was something Oog was not trying to avoid? That maybe he didn't want or feel the desire to save himself? He did not want to call anyone for help? This would be the conclusion investigators were beginning to arrive at in their attempts to interpret the death scene. As they really began to take in what the crime scene inside and outside of Oog's apartment was telling them, investigators began to speculate that Oog was the only individual present at the time of the stabbing. 
Let's try and wrap our minds around that for a moment. Based on a couple of factors at the crime scene, they began to come to the conclusion that Oog was alone when he was stabbed, when he began bleeding, when he crisscrossed his apartment, and when he died. And there are four main reasons for this. One, there is no blood trail leading away from Oog's apartment. Two, there is nobody else seen in the surveillance video that captured those images of Oog headed towards his apartment as he made his way home from the bar. Three, there is no sign of any struggle anywhere inside or outside the apartment. There is no blood evidence that indicates a fight or signs of violence or any kind of high-velocity blood splatter. And lastly, there is no indication that Oog tried to get help or call for help. I don't think anyone heard any yelling or screaming, but I will also talk about what neighbors heard in just a little bit as well. And what all of this means is that investigators, the San Francisco police and detectives, are beginning to entertain the idea that the injuries Oog suffered from were in fact self-inflicted, meaning Oog did this to himself, that he actually stabbed himself. I'm not going to dismiss that right away. We will talk about that theory, along with everything else surrounding Uke's death. But first, let's talk about each of those four points in the case that led investigators to think that Uke stabbed, bled, and died alone. The blood trail, or lack of a blood trail, leading away from the stoop outside of Uke's apartment. Does there necessarily have to be a blood trail if someone stabbed Oog as he stood there or was confronted by an assailant? I don't necessarily think so. I think a person could stab someone and flee the scene without leaving a trail, quite easily actually. There are so many variables and unknowns when it comes to a stabbing event such as this one. If Oog were to have been stabbed by someone and that someone fled... Who's to say that person didn't tuck the knife away in their coat or into a pocket or even into a bag? I mean, if you're going to stab someone and you actually pull it off, are you going to want to be seen fleeing away from the scene with a bloody knife in hand, dripping the victim's blood along the way as you go? And in a report I watched about the case, the lead detective suggested that it is not uncommon for an assailant to injure himself or herself when administering stab wounds to a victim. Okay, yeah, I get it. We've seen that plenty of times, right? I'd even touched on it in the beginning of this episode that when a person stabs someone multiple times, blood often begins getting onto not only the blade of the knife, but also the handle and the hand of the person wielding the knife. This causes it to become very slippery, and this can cause the hand of the person holding the knife to slide down the handle and across the blade, causing injury to the assailant. And this causes the stabber to begin bleeding, leaving evidence and often a blood trail of their own away from the scene. But not every person who stabs somebody hurts themselves. Yes, it occurs, but it's not a requirement. And if someone approached Oog with the intent to stab him, remember, Oog had been drinking not too long before. He could have been caught off guard. He may not have put up much of a struggle. The person doing the stabbing could have done so without very much hesitation at all on the part of Oog, making it quite easy to just stab, stab, stab and walk away. 
I found it to be quite disturbing for the lead investigator to insinuate a person stabbing is more prone to injure themselves than not during the commission of a violent crime such as this. It seems like a huge conclusion to jump to. To believe that a victim of a stabbing is more likely to have injured himself with self-inflicted stab wounds because an assailant didn't cut himself or herself while doing the stabbing. I actually find it to be quite amateur and ridiculous to make such a pedestrian conclusion such as this. Making that assumption because there was no blood trail or otherwise injured party that Oog did this to himself. Okay, I don't know about you guys, but that just doesn't make any sense to me, especially coming from the experts examining the scene. Secondly, the grainy video surveillance video only depicting one person approaching Oog's apartment. For one, nobody can be certain that the shadowy figure in the video is actually Oog. As I said, his ex-girlfriend and his family believes, based on the shape of his silhouette, that it is him. I don't have any reason to not think it's him, and the timing of the lone person walking towards the direction of his apartment, it makes some sense that it would be him. But to me, it really doesn't mean all that much that he's seen on this video or that he's the only person ever seen in the video in the frame in which Oog is believed to have been killed. There are a couple of reasons for this. One is Oog did leave the bar by himself. He did make it into his apartment and he put his keys and wallet down and he did get on the computer to do some internet searching and he did prepare himself something to eat. So... Him being the only person seen walking towards his apartment on that video isn't that relevant. We know he made it there, and we know he made it there alone. Next, the video only shows one angle of Oog walking in the direction of his home, and the camera is pointed towards his back. Beyond the scope of the camera, whatever is out of range beyond him and in the direction he was headed is obscured by darkness and it seems to be a side of a building and perhaps some trees. You are unable to see what is in front of Oog at all. So even if there had been anyone beyond the point we were able to see Oog, it's impossible to tell, and the camera would not necessarily have had range that far. All we see is the back of a person walking away from the camera, and Oog's front door and stoop are not visible either. If someone had approached him at the front door and assaulted him, that person could have come from a variety of different directions and would not necessarily have crossed into the frame of that lone surveillance camera. The stabbing could have taken place on the stoop, and those areas are not in view of the camera like I said, and the getaway could have been made, and none of it ever captured on video. It's very, very possible. So for investigators to dismiss the notion that Oog was stabbed by someone else just because no one else is seen on the video, I find to be quite narrow thinking on their part. The third reason why investigators have considered Oog's death to be a suicide is because from all of the evidence inside his home, it seems pretty clear that he was inside, bleeding to death, alone. I am not going to dispute that. Despite the fact that there was an overturned TV and broken glass and Oog's watch was found underneath his dead body having been seemingly torn from his wrist, I do believe Oog did bleed to death alone inside his apartment. He wasn't in a fight with anyone in his house. 
There wasn't any high-velocity blood spatter anywhere to be found. There was no blood being flung about as a result of a fight for one's life. There was no cast-off blood spatter indicating anyone plunged a knife into Oog, pulled it out, plunged it into him again, pulled it out, and plunged it into him again while casting blood onto the walls or ceiling while doing so. None of that is present at the scene, at least what the initial investigation found. There was a second investigation, and I will talk about that a little bit later, and they did make some discoveries the first investigators missed. But I do believe investigators initially looked at the inside of the apartment as the place where the stabbing took place. I don't think they considered the stabbing having occurred outside on the stoop, and I'm not quite sure why they didn't take the possibility of that scenario into consideration at the time Oog's body was discovered. But then again, that might be conjecture on my part. I'm thinking that they focused on what they were seeing inside, looking for that fight or that struggle that would have caused the TV to tip over and the glass to break and the watch to be ripped off from his wrist. I think they jumped to the conclusion that the stabbing occurred inside the apartment and when the blood evidence was such that it appeared only one person was present at the scene, they raised the theory that Oog must have stabbed himself. And it wasn't just the detectives, it was the crime scene specialists and the medical examiner too. It feels like they all narrowed their focus early on and geared the investigation to confirm their thinking. And the fourth reason San Francisco investigators came to the conclusion that Oog's death possibly or likely was a suicide was because he apparently made no attempt to call for help for himself. He didn't reach for his cell phone or a landline if there was one at his apartment. Investigators checked call records, and there was never a call for emergency services to his address. And they found this to be unusual because it looked as though he walked around his apartment a lot. It looked like he was reaching for things, like he was attempting to steady himself or try to pull himself up, but all the while he was moving in a cumbersome manner based on what I had talked about earlier, the way the blood dropped onto the floor. So if he was roaming around, purportedly in an attempt to steady himself or to look around for something, why wouldn't he grab his phone? Honestly, I don't think Oog was capable of that type of thinking. He was losing blood quickly, and I will talk more about that when I get to his injuries, but I don't think that it was like the scenario I described a little while ago with Peter Porco walking around his house going about his usual routine before he finally succumbed to his injuries. I think Oog had a few seconds of clarity, and I want to say it was enough to lead him back into his home and lock the door behind him. That was it. I think he went into shock quickly due to the massive blood loss and was aimlessly wandering around the apartment until he finally came to rest on the floor and died. And in his wanderings, I believed he stepped in his own blood. He had his shoes on, which indicates to me that he purposely went outside. I don't know if they were his house shoes or slippers. I really couldn't tell from the bloody footprints, but they look like the soles of shoes, not slippers. And again, I will get into that when I tell you my theory of what happened that night. What was it that brought Oog outside that night after he'd already been home from an evening of drinking with friends? 
The lead detective on the scene will be the first to tell you that he had always treated this case as if it were a homicide from the very beginning. He's even said that he wouldn't have even been there if they weren't looking at it as such. Okay, I get that and I believe him. The detective, nowhere did I find that he or anyone involved in the investigation never went on record actually proclaiming that Oog's death was a suicide. As a matter of fact, when asked in an interview where the idea first got floated that Oog's death was a suicide, both the lead investigator and the assistant medical examiner pointed the finger at Oog's ex-girlfriend, Melissa Nix, as the one who planted the seed of the idea of suicide in their minds when they interviewed her four days after Oog's death. Melissa was not in the San Francisco area when Oog died. She was actually on the East Coast. So when she heard about his passing, she made a few phone calls to confirm what she'd heard, and within a couple days, she flew out to San Francisco to find out for herself what had happened. She is a journalist, so she probably has that inherent instinct to poke around and ask the pressing questions. So when she got in touch with the lead detective on the case, he really didn't have much to say to her about it, and he didn't really have a lot of questions for her either. And she found this to be kind of strange since she was one of the closest people to Oog in the United States. She described having a bad feeling about her conversation with the detective on the case. So she decided to call the local newspaper affiliate that would be covering the crime. And when she asked about who was reporting Oog's death, she was told that they don't report suicides. And for her, she would claim that that was the first she had heard the contention that Oog may have taken his own life. And of course, just like everyone else in his life, all of his friends, colleagues, his parents, all of them would dispute that Oog was suicidal. To them, the idea was impossible. There's just no way. And I completely understand that. But I also understand the need to investigate this death from all angles before reaching a conclusion. I totally get that too. And there were some things that seemed strange about the scene. And I could see how there was a need to consider all interpretations. But eventually, you've got to reach a point where you take all the pieces of evidence and decide what is likely and what is not likely to have occurred. And I'm not so sure that was ever done. The assistant medical examiner in an interview I read referred to the police interview that Melissa Nix gave to the lead detective on the case. And she would point out in that interview that it was indeed Melissa that first floated the idea of suicide. And sadly, it appears that that's what had actually happened when she spoke to police. We don't have full access to that interview she gave, but at some point, she did mention that Oog had a vested interest in Japanese culture. And this also included an interest in Japanese swords and samurais and movies related as such. So she asked the detective if he thought that the stabbing to Oog's abdomen was a Harry Curie. This seemed to be a strange thing to bring up. I don't know what the detective was saying or asking that may have prompted her to ask that question, but she asked it. And the detectives would then say it was she that first insinuated that Oog may have committed suicide by Harry Curie, not them. She would say that they were asking her leading questions, and it was something that she asked perhaps without thinking of the implications of what she was telling police. So real quick, what is Harry Carey? 
I understood the essence of what Melissa was asking when she said this, that it was some sort of Japanese-style self-inflicted stabbing to the torso. But I wanted to know a little bit more. Harry Carey translates from the Japanese as abdomen or belly cutting, and it is defined as a ritualistic type of suicide by disembowelment and had been something originally practiced by samurais. But other non-samurai Japanese people would also practice this form of suicide and that it is meant to be a way of reestablishing their honor or the honor of their families. So a samurai would use the practice of harikiri if they were at risk of being captured by one's enemy or possibly subjected to torture. They would voluntarily slice into their abdomen to kill themselves rather than being taken captive. Harikiri is also a form of capital punishment for a samurai who's committed a serious crime. Dying by harikiri is done like a ceremony and done in front of spectators in order to restore their dignity. I'll warn you that this next part is kind of graphic. But what they are said to have to do is plunge a short blade into their own abdomen and then bring it from left to right, effectively opening the abdomen. If it's done properly, it will cut deep enough to sever the descending aorta which will cause rapid and massive blood loss, followed by a quick death. Okay, so I find it odd that Melissa would ask this question. Why would her mind go to a ritualistic honor suicide? I don't know, Ugh, but it seems like a strange thought to have about him. If I were to know someone who was ever contemplating suicide, I'm not sure the first place I'd go would be an honor suicide for disgracing oneself or one's family. It's a weird thought, but the fact that the police and the medical examiner took her words and ran with it is even stranger. I mean, I know Melissa knew Oog probably better than anyone, but would investigators just go with her comment and run with it till the end? That just seems kind of weird and unprofessional if you ask me. So let's talk about this assistant medical examiner for a few minutes. I watched an interview with her, and she comes across really well, and I appreciated the things that she had to say. I really felt like she took what she was seeing at the scene and put a great deal of thought into her observations, but I think some of her opinions may have been swayed by the lead detective, and I'll touch on that more towards the end of the story. It was a very confounding scene. There were so many contradictions. The appearance of a struggle, but no blood spatter of a struggle. Being deadbolted from the inside. The stammering about the apartment, but no attempt to call for help. The watch being ripped from his wrist and found on the floor underneath his body. It could be very confusing if you're walking into this bloody scene for the first time. The assistant medical examiner would also be the one to perform the autopsy on Oog three days after his death. She found a total of three major stab wounds to his body, a stab into his abdomen, one to his chest, and a very deep vertical stab wound to the left side of his neck. This third wound to his neck severed some of the major blood vessels, as well as perforated Oog's left lung. She did indicate that the wounds were so significant that they would most likely to have come from an attack by an assailant. But 
she said that she had to concede that there was a possibility, in her expert opinion, that the wounds could have been self-inflicted. She just could not rule out the possibility, based on the wounds and based on the scene, that he may have killed himself. She pointed out specifically the wound to the neck that was in such a way that a right-handed person like Oog, if they wanted to cut their own throat, the way that it was done to his neck is consistent with the self-inflicted slashing, that it goes from right to left and then down. And the wound in the abdomen entered his body straightforward. So in other words, the angles at which the knife stabbed Oog were in such a way that he could have done it to himself. But then, the medical examiner did go on to point out a couple of injuries that could be consistent with some defense wounds, including a sharp force wound to the left side of his forehead and a significant bruise on his right forearm. Therefore, with the autopsy not really giving her any concrete answers as to whether or not the stabbing was done by Oog or someone else, as well as the physical evidence at the scene not revealing that anyone else was present when Oog was stabbed, remember, nobody else's hair, fibers, blood, or DNA were found except for Oog's. The medical examiner could not reach a definitive conclusion as to the manner of Oog's death. So, because of all of these circumstances combined, she ruled his manner of death as undetermined. I don't know what that means for the investigation as a whole, but I don't think it did anything to bring any kind of urgency to Oog's case. I mean, if it had been ruled a homicide, then the case has to be taken seriously, right? There's a killer out there who viciously stabs someone to death. But if the experts can't decide on whether or not Oog killed himself, it's likely their urgency drops exponentially. And as far as Oog's friends, family, and loved ones could see, that's precisely what happened to the case of Oog's death. The rumors of his death being a suicide circulating could very well have adversely affected his investigation and how it was going to be handled. And just like the local newspaper reporter told Melissa Nix when she called, they don't report on suicides. It was starting to not look good for those who were seeking justice for Oog. Not at all. Before I go on, there are two more very important things that need to be considered before you make up your minds as to whether this is a suicide or homicide or you have no idea. I think it's very important to talk about what the neighbors heard because they heard something going on outside their apartment in those early morning hours when Oog died. And they were very specific about what they heard. And I think of all the things investigators took into account, this was probably one of the things they seemed to not take into consideration very seriously. Okay, so a few hours after Oog's body was found, the lead detective on the case spoke to his neighbors, a couple who lived in the apartment right next door. If you look at pictures of the crime scene, you will see that the landing has three doors that lead to three different apartments. That's how close in proximity these neighbors are. They told the detective that at 2.38 a.m. in the morning, they were both awakened by some kind of disturbance just outside their window, along with a kind of a loud thud. 
They also said that they heard a sound like someone opening the door. Then after a little bit of time had passed, they heard the door open and close again. And then they heard the sound of someone running down some stairs. And then they heard the sound of someone loudly sitting down or a thud or falling down. All of this was very loud as they could hear it through their wall. I don't know what you guys make of all of this noise after 2.38 in the morning, but based on the timing, the fact that Oog left the bar a little bit before closing time around 1.50 in the morning, and the fact that he's purportedly seen in that grainy video around 2.06 in the morning, and then he got home, and then he fixed some food, and then he got online, 2.38 a.m. to begin hearing the disturbance outside their windows seems to line up with the timing of everything. And I'll refer back to these neighbors' account when I give you my theory on what happened to Oog that morning. The second big huge thing about this case that needs to be mentioned is the murder weapon. More specifically, there is no murder weapon. None. Oog was stabbed and there is no bloody knife found anywhere in, out, or around his apartment. So, if you want to entertain the homicide theory, then this is easily explained. Somebody attacked Oog stabbed him, fled the scene, and took the knife with them. Most killers who stab do take the knife with them in order to conceal evidence, as well as not leave evidence behind. A knife to be traced to them, fingerprints, DNA, possible blood if they injured themselves while stabbing the victim. It's uncommon for weapons to be left behind in cases like this in general. So, the knife not being there, if we believe Oog was murdered, makes total sense. But... What if we were to entertain the suicide theory? Where the heck is the knife? Oog mortally wounds himself, slicing through his massive neck vessels, and in a minute or two bleeds out and dies in his home, and no bloody knife is found on, near, or around him anywhere? For me, this just about eliminates the possibility of suicide right off the bat. There's got to be a weapon nearby. Always, right? Well... If you're the San Francisco police and you want to push the suicide theory, if you want to make the pieces of the puzzle fit, you're going to find a way to try and make sense of the inexplicable. So, in order to explain away the lack of a weapon on the scene, the investigators came up with a couple of possible scenarios. First, they did find three steak knives in Oog's kitchen and one of them was in the sink. And the others seemed placed on or near some bowls where he might have been preparing some food or cutting something up to eat. These knives were in plain sight, on the counter. None of them had blood on them. At least, not any visible blood. But the knives were taken in for further processing. And there was absolutely no trace of Oog's blood found on any of those knives. So, after not having found any traces of blood on those knives investigators needed to come up with some kind of plausible theory in order to explain away this evidence or lack thereof, as it were. And they came up with a couple of doozies to support the notion that Oog committed suicide. They suggested perhaps that after Oog stabbed himself and inflicted those mortal wounds to his neck and chest and abdomen, that he may have went back into the kitchen and washed the knife off and put it back in its place. Now, I wasn't there, okay, so I suppose anything is possible. And I keep saying that in this story, anything is possible. But 
I find it difficult to believe that Oog would have been physically capable of completely washing all traces of blood evidence off of a knife that he would have used to stab himself. Based on the severity of the wound to his neck, it's believed that he would have expired in under two minutes, and that's being generous. They're saying that Oog, traversing his apartment with blood pouring out of the wound of his neck, spilling all over his apartment, somehow managed to do what no other criminal has ever been able to do before and remove every single speck of blood evidence on a weapon used to stab himself? Um, I'm not buying it. And wait, this gets better. Another theory investigators lobbed out there to explain the lack of a murder weapon is that perhaps Oog opened the front door or a window and somehow, remember with the mortal neck wound, tossed the knife far enough away that investigators scouring the scene the next day were unable to find it, or that maybe Oog buried the knife someplace nearby where it was never recovered. Okay, like I said, not out of the range of possibility, I guess, but really? This is one of those cases where there is a simple explanation that makes good sense. But because the waters have been muddied by those investigating Oog's death, they have to reach beyond the realm of what's reasonable in order to explain things that don't really need explaining. Like, the knife used to stab Oog is not at the scene, probably because the person who stabbed him fled with it. Seems reasonable to me anyway. I also wanted to take a moment and talk about motive, both aspects of it, a motive for homicide and a motive for suicide. Putting all the other evidence and minutia aside, let's start with suicide. Did it seem Oog had a reason to want to end his life? I kind of touched on this in the beginning. Of course, I didn't know Oog, and you can only go by what his friends and family have to say about him. And nobody, nobody would believe for a moment that Oog was in a place where he wanted to end his life. He had a great job. He had money in the bank. He had just celebrated a promotion at work. He was single, but he appeared to be living the single life to the fullest, by which I mean he was actively dating and dating multiple women. And this might actually play into some of the theories surrounding his death, which I'll talk about in a minute. He had plans to go motorcycle riding the next day. He was the only child of parents whom he seemed to have a great relationship with. He didn't leave a note. He didn't have any drugs in his system at all that may have led him to do something he normally wouldn't have done. Yes, Oogs's autopsy toxicology report was negative across the board for all drugs. Nothing about that night or anything leading up to that night would have been an indicator that Oog was depressed or sad or suicidal in any way. But the experts do acknowledge that it is possible for one to decide on a whim or seemingly out of nowhere to kill themselves. It's not unheard of, but is this a thing Oog would have done? I can't know for sure, but it really doesn't seem like it. And what about the motive for homicide? Let's talk about some common motives to kill. Money, greed, revenge, jealousy, anger. There's more, but I don't really think that they really apply in Oog's situation. Oog wasn't robbed. 
His wallet and valuables were left behind. And by all accounts, everyone seemed to like the guy. It didn't appear that he had any enemies in his life. But if you've ever watched Investigation Discovery and you've seen Homicide Hunter Lieutenant Joe Kenda, and he always says when somebody says a victim never had any enemies, to that he says, wrong. They had one, and that person killed him. And that's about where my theory of Oog's death lies. In the realm of having made an enemy, someone was angry, perhaps jealous. And those who have looked at Oog's case seem to think that it is likely the motive for murder. So let me share with you what I think happened to Oog de la Plaza that night. I believe Oog made somebody very angry, very, very angry. I don't want to come across as blaming or judging Oog for his lifestyle. He was single and he was perfectly free to live his life however he saw fit. That being said, I think his promiscuity cut up with him. His friends made no secret of the fact that Oog was casually dating a number of women and he did not discriminate or show much discretion as to who they were or what their situation was. His best friend, a fellow French transplant, described his personal life like this. He was dating a new woman every night. He told Oog that he was going to burn himself out. When he was asked if Oog would date someone else's woman, he said, oh yes, of course. If she had a boyfriend, he didn't care. If she had a husband, he didn't care. If it was your girlfriend, he didn't care. His friend was asked if he was looking for a relationship or if he was just looking to hook up. And his friend said, oh, he was looking for sex. Yes, definitely. And that's his best friend speaking of him. I think Oog arrived home in those early morning hours of June 2nd, 2007 alone. He had gone on a date earlier in the evening prior to meeting up with his friends at that bar, the SF Underground. He told his friends that the date didn't go well. I guess they didn't hit it off or maybe they were looking for different things. If Oog was wanting to hook up and she wasn't interested in something that casual or they just didn't seem compatible. Whatever the case, to Oog, it didn't go well. When he left SF Underground just before closing time, I think he was still in a party mood, having had a few drinks. I don't think he was completely wasted or anything like that, but he was still in the mood for some fun. It was reported that he had joked about going home and trying to find someone to hook up with since date number one was a bust. I think he made it home. He went inside. He prepared something to eat. And then he got online to look for someone to meet up with. An analysis of his computer showed that he had browsed some dating sites. Perhaps something a little more seedy. I'm not sure. It appeared to be an attempt to find someone to have a casual sexual encounter with. I believe he made contact with someone, but I don't think it was going to end up the way he had planned. I think it's possible that he made plans to meet up with a woman for sex. I don't know if it was a woman he'd met up with before or if it was someone new, but whoever it was, 
I think he had inadvertently connected with someone that she was in a relationship with. I think Oog got a hold of the boyfriend or the husband of a woman he had sexual contact with previously or was intending to have sexual contact with. And unbeknownst to Oog, her significant other intercepted the communication. I think it's possible that that person decided to play into Oog's plans in order to put a stop to him getting together with the woman. I think this person was angry and jealous and set Oog up. I think that this significant other, and I'm just assuming that it's a husband or a boyfriend, made a date with Oog that night and showed up armed with a knife. I think it's possible that Oog was lured outside when this person arrived at his apartment and as soon as Oog stepped out onto his front stoop, this person attacked Oog with this knife out of rage and jealousy, a crime of passion, so to speak. And it is possible that it could have very well been one of the women he had been dating that did this to him. Either scenario could fit into this theory of mine. I think this attacker stuck Oog in the abdomen first, and this caused him to double over. Then I think the next two stab wounds were inflicted when Oog was bent over from the initial stab wound, once in the chest and the last stab into the neck, which caused all of that blood to begin flowing onto the steps and onto the railing. I believe all this began at the time the neighbor described first hearing the disturbance at 2.38 a.m. The door opening, the footsteps down the stairs, the door closing, and then the final thud. After he was stabbed, I believe Oog still had his wits about him enough to make it back inside his apartment and lock the door, but then it quickly went downhill from there. Oog was dying, and I believe after he locked his door, he quickly began going into shock and couldn't maintain much control over his mind or his body. I don't think he had the capacity to reach for his phone. I think he stumbled around his apartment, knocking over his TV, breaking the glass, and accidentally ripping the watch from his own wrist. I believe he slowly writhed around his apartment until he finally died on the floor next to the wall where his bloody handprint smeared downward and he came to rest. I don't think he had the capacity to cry out or scream for help because of the wounds to his neck. I believe he died quickly and quietly and alone. I have also entertained the possibility that Oog was attacked by someone who saw him walking alone in the neighborhood and maybe watched him walk into his apartment and wanted to try and rob him. But I don't know. We know Oog made it inside to his place. Something must have brought him back outside. Would he randomly answer a knock at the door and step outside unless he was expecting someone? I don't know. I do think he was expecting a visitor. That's why I lean towards the theory that he invited someone over for a rendezvous and it went terribly wrong. But because the San Francisco police decided seemingly early on that Oog likely committed suicide, they didn't investigate his computer or his phone records. Those were leads that could have been looked at, but they weren't. They never found out what Oog had planned that night or if he was expecting anyone. As you can imagine, Oog's family and friends were left very dissatisfied with the investigation. 
I'm not sure why San Francisco police settled on the possibility of this being a suicide. I'm certain this impacted how they were going to move forward on the case. I don't want to by any means bash the police. I have much respect for the work that they do. But I did hear report that at the time Oog died, the San Francisco Police Department was overwhelmed with an inordinate number of homicides. Is it possible that they just didn't have the resources to give Oog's case the proper investigation it required? I think that might be part of it. I also heard the possibility that maybe the police department didn't really take Oog's death that seriously because he was from a foreign country and he didn't have any immediate family in the area and that maybe they could try to rule out homicide in Oog's case and this would quietly go away. That didn't happen either, as Oog's parents were not going to let his death be swept under the rug. Eight days after Oog's death, and being deeply dissatisfied with the San Francisco police investigation, Oog's dad, Francois, hired a private investigator to take another look at the case. He too became convinced very quickly that Oog was murdered. He felt Oog lived in a very shady area, especially at night, and that Oog walking home at that time of night, it would be quite dangerous. So, whether it was someone Oog was expecting or someone who randomly showed up at his doorstep, he opened his door to his attacker. The private investigator did look at the angry lover angle, but he wasn't really able to uncover anyone Oog may have dated that would have had it in for him or anyone connected to someone that Oog dated. I don't know though, from the sounds of it, Oog had quite the prolific love life. And when you have a pool of suspects, it could be very easy for someone to fall through the cracks of the investigation. If Oog was casually seeing women, and a lot of them for that matter, would it even be possible to track them all down? Probably not. The last straw for Francois and his private investigator was when the lead detective told him that he wouldn't be surprised if Oog picked up some psychotic drugs on his way home from the bar that night from some drug dealers on the street, got super high, and irrationally stabbed himself. I've already told you that Oog's toxicology was clear. So Francois requested that the French investigators come to the United States and help with the son's case. And that is exactly what happened. I kind of think it makes the San Francisco police look kind of inept. And I don't really think they had a choice in the matter. The French authorities and the French government felt the need to come to the aid of the de la Plaza family. They simply didn't think enough was being done for Oog. And I can't say that I don't agree. I don't feel like the San Francisco police had any malicious intentions. I just think their resources were stretched thin. And the French authorities did uncover some things that the San Francisco police did overlook. One thing the French investigators discovered was that there was unknown DNA on Oog's watch band, the one that was found broken underneath him. Maybe that was something that should not have been overlooked, but I don't know how much that really adds to the case. We don't know if the watch was on Oog's wrist when he died. Yes, it was broken. 
but it could have been broken previously and knocked onto the ground while Ugg was struggling for his life. I don't know if anyone has said that they saw their watch on his wrist when he was at the bar earlier in the night. And if he was wearing it, out socializing and interacting with people, hugging friends or in close proximity to others, it is possible for DNA to be transferred onto his watch through casual contact too. But it could very well be the DNA of the person who wielded a knife at him. Oog raised his arm up to block an attack and the person came in contact with his watch, leaving behind his genetic marker. As it stands, the DNA remains unidentified. And in their final report, when they were done going over Oog's death, the French investigators ruled it a homicide. A year and a half after Oog died, his father offered a $100,000 reward for information leading to Oog's killer. Oog's ex-girlfriend has spearheaded marches demanding justice for Oog. His family and friends have held vigils in his memory. Melissa Nix has also had the Office of Citizens Complaints review the investigation by the San Francisco Police Department as she has accused them of neglecting their duties when working on Oog's case. A year and a half later, she did get a report back from her complaint that they did find several policy failures on the part of the police department, the crime lab, and the medical examiner's office. In 2009, the city of San Francisco got a new police chief, and when he took over, he did make Oog's case a priority. He met with Melissa and Francois, and it was then that they discovered something they had not been told before. The San Francisco police had actually had Oog's case reviewed by a third party, and they got the report back that same year the new chief had been sworn in. The independent medical examiner from nearby Marin County, California, ruled Oog's death a homicide. It wasn't a surprise that this ruling was made. What was a surprise to Oog's loved ones was that it had been kept a secret. Nobody from the San Francisco Police Department ever contacted any of them to tell them that they found the manner of death to not be undetermined, but rather a homicide. The reason for the ruling was because, again, of evidence missed by the initial crime scene investigators. The Marin County Medical Examiner, in reviewing pictures of the crime scene, noticed on a wall next to the outside staircase where there was blood spatter that was consistent with cast-off blood from the movements of someone plunging a knife into a person and removing that knife. This is cast-off blood spatter that no one ever seemed to notice before. This medical examiner also found abrasions on Oog's right palm that appeared to be typical defense wounds. He also found that because of the severity of the wound to Oog's neck, that he would have died in a matter of one minute, maybe two, and this is why he was never able to call for help. All he had time to do was get safely into his apartment, deadbolt the door, and then bleed to death. However, the original medical examiner on the case, no matter how many other experts come forward and rule Oog's death the homicide, short of someone coming forward and confessing to the thing, she's sticking to her original ruling of undetermined. It might be worth a mention here, and I alluded to it earlier. I don't know exactly how much after Oog's death, but sometime later, 
It was discovered that the medical examiner who conducted Oog's autopsy and the lead detective on the case were involved in a romantic relationship and that in some unrelated cases that they'd worked on in the past, the fact that they were in a relationship affected her rulings on causes and manners of death. I don't know what all of that means, so do with that what you will. I find that little nugget of information to be quite juicy. But that's something that probably belongs on a different podcast. And that is basically where Oog's death stands. Unsolved. And unless someone comes forward, that one person who knows something decides that enough is enough and finally speaks up, I don't think Ook's case is ever going to be solved. His story, for the most part, has now faded into obscurity. And that brings this 36th episode of California Dreaming to a close. Please join the discussion on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and let me know your thoughts on Ook's case. Is there any hope that it will ever be solved? Why do you think the San Francisco police would want to rule his death a suicide so quickly? Do you think that they really believe that that's possible? Or do you think that they wanted to sweep Oog's death under the rug and move on to more pressing cases? I'm very interested in your guys' opinions on this. And I'm so sorry that this episode is getting so long. I just wanted to make sure I went over as many of the details as I could. I don't even think I covered all of it, but I can't go on forever. So with that, I'd like to thank all of you who have recently joined in supporting California Dreaming on Patreon. If you've been a supporter, don't worry. I will mail you one of my new buttons. And for all new supporters, you will get one too, along with all of the other perks that I've given out. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to exclusive content sometimes an early release, and of course, all of the giveaways that I have for you guys. So if you love this show and you want to see it grow, maybe someday I'll be able to do this full time, then visit the Patreon page. There are tiers and levels for everyone. Also, I have a Twitter giveaway thing that I'm doing right now. I believe the tweet is pinned to the top of my page. All you have to do is retweet that pinned tweet to be entered into my drawing I'm having on March 31st, which will be the 25th anniversary of the death of actor and California native Brandon Lee. I have a Patreon episode about his life, career, and untimely death, which I will be releasing at midnight on the 31st of March for everyone to have access to. And I will announce the winner of my Twitter drawing for a gift from me, so don't forget to retweet. California Dreaming has found a home on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We have joined forces with an amazing group of podcast shows and hosts, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, The Dirty Bits, Historium, Is This Adulting, 410, and Film Roast. You can find all of us on www.orbitaljigsaw.com. And guess what? We've also launched the Orbital Jigsaw Podians Facebook group. All of us from Orbital Jigsaw are there, along with a bunch of other hosts from some of your favorite shows and some of our biggest and best podcast listeners and fans. It's more than just talking about our shows, but rather, it's an interactive group where we share ideas and news and articles 
about all things podcast and social media related, and much, much more. It's a fun place to meet new people, share ideas, and your experiences as both a host and a listener, and find out what's working and what's not working. It's a supportive, inclusive, drama-free group. Search the Orbital Jigsaw Podience page, spelled P-O-D-I-E-N-C-E, and request to join. You can also find links to the Orbital Jigsaw Network merchandise store at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. There, you can get your California Dreaming merchandise, t-shirts, mugs, throw pillows, phone cases, tote bags, so much more. And every single purchase supports the creation of this show. And really quickly before I let you guys go, I want to give a big huge thank you to the people who jumped in on Patreon at the higher levels. Beth, Darren, and Randy. Thank you all so much for your support. Your generosity means everything to me. And thank you again for listening. And until next time, sweet dreams.